0: from wakefield it's the nolan car night show and when you join nolan's guest this week for the 90th episode of the podcast david leap to the show and now ladies and gentlemen here's nolan and welcome back to the edition of the program as my guest and i sit down virtually to record this i'm pleased that we have reached another milestone edition of the podcast being number 90 it's been my absolute pleasure you know to do this didn't think i would last this long but here we are full steam ahead and Who better to have on than my guest for this amazing episode? I hope you enjoyed this, and I hope you enjoyed the previous ones. Now, as I said, we reached this milestone episode. Who better to have on as our guest, as he is reaching two weeks before his global release of his book, based out of Southern California. His work has been seen on every major broadcast network. He has collaborated and created work on the likes of the Bee Gees, the families of John Lennon, James Brown, the Brothers Marks. Peter Sellers, Jonathan Winters, and of course, my favorite and his favorite, Brian Douglas Wilson. When he's not behind a camera or winning awards for his written work, he can be found at UCLA teaching the next hopeful generation of songwriters, historians, and filmmakers. I am pleased to have David Leith on the podcast for the aforementioned 90th episode to talk about his new book, an expanded and updated version of The Beach Boys and the California Myth, now titled God Only Knows, Brian Wilson, The Beach Boys and the California Myth. David, it's a pleasure to have this time with you today.
1: Thank you, Nolan. It's great to be here. That was an amazing introduction, especially as, as you referred to them as, as the brothers Marks. Yes, I, I love that, that. You know, I can see behind you. You have some of my favorite uh, yes. people of all time. I teach a course in the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, the Sopranos was obviously one of the greatest yeah. television shows of all times, and and Goodfellas. Uh, you know, just it it makes me wish I could have a slice or two of pizza while we're doing the show.
0: As I've said, talked about with all my guests, and it's sort of just present there Brian had his tour rescheduled and as did all other musicians because of these wild and crazy times that we find ourselves in and you wrote your Mm -hmm. book and finished your book during these times so besides the book or maybe including the book how's life been for you now be able to look at this point forward
1: well you know the, the the book is really thrilling for me because it's been out of print for over 35 years and I ran out of copies a long time ago, long before you were born. So I couldn't even, even if somebody was like a great friend and they wanted a copy, I didn't have one to, to give to them. So I'm, I'm thrilled to get it back in print. Uh, uh, co- curiously, as a writer, as a, as a, as a professor, uh, as a filmmaker, the the... the, the you know, being at home in front of a laptop is kind of what I'm used to doing. Sure. So, 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 so life is inside my bubble. Is 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 great. Um, you know, the, we won't we won't go down the rabbit hole of the world. Sure. But, but writing about Brian Wilson and, and the music that he created with the Beach Boys and after he left the group to to go on his solo career. It, it seems to be my greatest passion, <laughs> as 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 a creator. I first wrote about Brian um, when I was in college. I wrote reviews of, of the Surfs Up and Holland albums for, for my college newspaper. I started a, a, a magazine called Pet Sounds when I moved to California from New York. Uh, I, my book, uh, the original edition of The Beach Boys in the California Myth, came out in 1978. Wow. Uh, I've known him. Uh, I met him in '76, and uh, I've been—you know—we've been friends for well over 40 years so it's 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 really exciting to have had a chance to sit down without really any pressure sure other, other than the deadline from my publisher and 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 revisit um what Brian's accomplished since sure. the last edition cuz the, the first edition and the and the update that came out in 85 neither of those books ended on a happy note yeah they were really they were really Sad, slash depressing, slash almost hopeless, and now we can look back from from twenty twenty two at this remarkable, remarkable amount of work he's done since then. The amazing tours he's done, the, his first solo tours, the Pet Sounds tours, him, and the Brian Wilson presents Smile, that Lucky Old son, Gershwin, yeah. and on and on and on. It's just been an amazing, amazing uh, experience to have have lived through. Speaking and now to, and now, now to write about my memories and share it.
0: In other interviews you've done, whether it be uh, with Giggins or other people or Beach Voice Talk, you talked about, besides maybe being a fan of the the Beatles and maybe a record or two of theirs, maybe Neil Sedak's greatest hits, you, you weren't really maybe a commercial buyer and record collector prior to going to, to college at George Washington.
1: I, I wasn't an album buyer, uh, you know, the, 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 other than the Beatles uh, and and... and I bought singles. I bought lots of singles. Well, I don't know. I had 100 or so singles. Uh, you know, the radio um, played the songs you loved so much. Top 40 radio w- was, was just kind of this endless loop. Uh, so they had their playlist. In New York specifically, it was more like a top 20 playlist. So if you think of, of you know, you, in the course of a couple of hours, you would hear your favorite songs over and over again. So you didn't really need to buy the records sure. that much. Um, but yeah, so college is where um, my, my musical horizons narrowed <laughs> from, okay, the Beatles to there's this incredible world of music. I mean, I think yeah. in just like the first week of college, I heard Days of Future passed by the Moody Blues. I heard uh, the first Crosby, Stills and Nash wow. album. I heard uh, James Taylor's first album. I mean, it was just like, it, 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 and ten others that that are still important to me. So, so there was this this explosion that had been going on. It just it finally reached me. I, I was a a, a, a a late arrival, so to speak.
0: There were there were two instances in the beginning of the book where you talk about, or maybe even in interviews you've also done, where you talked about the Beach Boys concert you went to in high school, part of your bowling team. And then when you went with the, your RA at GW, to the concert and what that meant to you. And I, I found it funny that you, the first time you saw them, you, you, you thought it was an intermission because you'd been to Broadway shows and then the show was over. A, at that point, how important was those, were those concerts to you in terms of getting to LA to then write your book about Brian and help him with Smile?
1: So the first time I saw the Beach Boys, uh, Thanksgiving Eve of 1967, Um, It was the first rock concert I'd ever been to and the, the key moment of that night really was kind of this positive mass hysteria the experience of hearing live a hit that you were in love with at the moment it was a hit not not a show where you're looking at you know where you're going to legacy acts and you're hearing hearing them do, do songs from 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Sure. But to hear the Strawberry Alarm Clock do Incense and Peppermints and the Soul Survivors do Expressway to Your Hearts and the entire Beach Boys set was hit. So that was exciting, but it had nothing to do with me becoming a, a, a writer about the Beach Boys. It was just, this was a great sure. experience. That's all it was. Um, the concert I went to in in, in the fall of 1971 was Part of this kind of, um, uh, it, was, it was three things happened in the fall of 71 that made me a, a, a fanatic, if you will. Um, it was reading this article in Rolling Stone about Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys and, and the Smile album. It was buying and listening to endlessly the album Surf's Up that yeah. the article was promoting, especially the title song, which was from Smile. And the song that just preceded it, a song called Till I Die. And, and what happened with those songs was with, with Surfs Up, it was, oh my God, Smile is as great as this article yeah. says. And and Till I Die told me he could still do it. Yeah. So when I went to see the Beach Boys and heard them recreating on stage surfs up and and other songs of that era, as well as their greatest hits, it was impressive. Um, and it was actually the night, as, as I mentioned in the book, where uh, where I met my first Beach Boy. Yeah. Uh, but but it was really it was really reading Brian's story and hearing the music, and then delving back into the Beach Boys' discography. That very early on, after those events happened. Um, in, in late 71, early 72, I, I said to my roommate, something like, I, I'm going to move to California, write a book about Brian Wilson, become his friend and help him finish Smile. Yeah. I mean, it, it was it was it, it is funny. I mean, it's yeah. crazy. I mean, what you know, it's like it's like somebody saying, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be president. Yeah. I mean, it was just as absurd a notion. Sure. But yet again, somebody does grow up to be president. And and so, um, but it it laid out in very simple terms a, a, a dream. Now I had a lot of other dreams as well. Sure. I wanted I wanted to be a writer on situation comedies. Uh, I wanted to be a sportscaster. caster uh, a lot of things that I did, uh, but nothing nothing meant as much to me as as writing about Brian and and. In a sense, I wanted to, to grab the world by the shirt collar and kind of shake them with the book and sure. say, do you understand how important this guy is? Yeah. This guy is really a big deal. Why are you not paying sure. attention to him?
0: Well, I, I marvel. I'm kind of jealous that you were able to be there for the moment of the Beach Boys when they probably were the most creative in the early 70s with Surf Up" and, and Sunflower. As a fan, though, it, and maybe from your perspective, because you talk about it in the book where the Beach Boys had a lot of moments of flashes of brilliance, but then moments where they could they, they didn't f- go through with their plans. You see Surf's Up, Sunflower, great albums. As a fan, do you, did you hope that that was the direction they would take? Because you mentioned Till I Die was a high-class version of In My Room. Um, you, your thoughts of that music then, but also where they would end up in, from there.
1: Well, you know, as I wrote in the first edition and in the, in the, uh, in the update, um, after the Holland album, there was a lot of disappointment. Yeah. Um, we were hoping, we, it was kind of a, a group of fans and friends who were following them, and we were hoping the next album would be great. And after Surfs Up, Carl and the Passions wasn't great. Yeah. Uh, uh, Holland had flashes of greatness, The Traitor, the title song, the little snippets of music on the fairy tale, Funky Pretty. But overall, it wasn't a start to finish great album. Mm-hmm. It didn't stand up to Sunflower Surfs Up. And then after the Beach Boys kind of became a greatest hits act, their albums since then have been anywhere from you know B minus to, to D D minus. Yeah. Um, you know, depending upon your taste. Yeah. Ironically, the album they made a decade ago for their 50th anniversary was a pretty good album. Yeah. Uh, much better than, the, you know, the, I think we had a right to expect. But, um, you know, you, you say you you kind of envy the fact that I came along at that at that moment in, in 71 when they were at their, when the Beach Boys as opposed to Brian were at their kind of creative peak. Uh, interestingly, interestingly, the more you learn about that Era, uh, meaning like the Feel Flows box set, uh, you realize that they just couldn't get out of their own way. Yeah. Um, when I interviewed Steve Des- Stephen Desper, the great engineer who was key to that, to the, to the, to the greatness of the music of the, of, that's on the Feel Flows box set, and you, you hear a story that Brian had done an original version of Till I Die. And you find out that the Beach Boys rejected it; that they thought it was too depressing a song to put on a Beach Boys album. And so Brian, okay, I'm going to write a new lyric, and and the lyric he wrote is depressing enough. One can only imagine what the original lyric yeah. was. Uh, so, so uh, you know, a Dennis's song. Wouldn't it be nice? Uh, wouldn't it be nice to be young again? Is that yeah? The title? Yeah. If that had ended side one of the Surfs Up album, you know, and, and, you know, what would that album have been sure. like? You know, so so there were there were a lot of you know people people once said people used to always ask me why did the Beach Boys do this or why did they do that, and it kind of got tiring to answer the question because they they just seemed to always make the wrong decisions. Sure, you uh, they, they didn't. Have, you oh, no, didn't really have, I mean, the Be- you know, if, if you go back to 1962 and so the Beatles are getting their first recording contract with EMI Records, the Parlophone label, and the Beach Boys are getting their first contract with Capitol Records, uh, a subsidiary of EMI. Sixty years ago, you're talking about anniversaries, um, Brian Epstein became the Beatles manager and Murray Wilson became the Beach Boys manager. And that may tell you all you need to know in terms of the Beach Boys were kind of a home-made, home-run operation. And the Beatles were reaching for the stars. They always were reaching for the stars. There's an amazing interview with Brian Epstein, um, with the the radio journalist Larry Kane, where he says, and this is a clip you can see on the web. uh, Larry, uh, I believe that in the year 2000, people will be listening to the Beatles' music. and and realize how great they are. There was nobody on the Beatles, there was nobody on the Beach Boys side doing that until they hired Derek Taylor, who had been the Beatles publicist. And he's the one who created the idea that Brian Wilson's genius. He's the one who came up with with the, the public relations slogan. And it was Brian Wilson is a genius, dot, 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 I think. And the British press ate it up and since 1966 in England, Brian has been a god. Yeah, but that didn't happen in the United
2: States. Yes, it's
0: it's it's just it's hard to imagine that and put that together for a group to in their own country to not be popular for many years in the late 60s and into some of the 70s, but then go overseas and they're beloved and you, Pet Sounds, you the Pet Sounds tour overseas and it's always a, a great success over there, you mentioned the Pet Sounds fan magazine that you were working on. Um, mm-hmm. How much of that and in, in that process did you think or know would connect you further down the line to be able to write a book about Brian and, and the group? Um,
1: the answer is probably 100% and zero. When I, when I started Pet Sounds, uh, which in those days they called them a fanzine. Um, so I guess it was like a, a paper podcast, if you yeah. will. It was a way for people who believed in, you know, the a small group of people. I, I never reached a thousand subscribers. I think I think the first issue, um, I had 300 subscribers or something like that. Um, but I started so that I could write what I wanted to sure. write about Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. And it was absolutely unbelievable series of events that led to me getting a book contract. The first issue came out in February of 1977. And the, a guy named Bob Merlis, who was the head of Warner Brothers Music Publicity for decades, great guy, great publicist. He had helped get me some interviews. He, he helped with, with all sorts of things. He, he made sure I got the the advance cover for the Beach Boys Love You to include in that, that issue. When he saw the first issue, he said, wow, oh, this is really cool. Could, could I get a 1,000 of these? And it was like, yeah. And he sent them to every single rock critic on his mailing list. And one of them, um, a guy named Guy, named guy at at the Village Voice in New York, got it and had never seen anything like it. And he did an article about it. And he interviewed me for the article. And it was because of that, that a a book packaging company in New York named Delilah Books saw it and hired me to do research on one of their books. And when the author of that book, which was going to be called called Sand Tracks, growing up with the Beach Boys, when when he um, sold a mini series I can convince them to let me write the book. So there's amazing series of circumstances, and and I I didn't tell you know. There's another twenty minutes to the story, but so so pet sounds led to the book. Without pet sounds, the book wouldn't have happened.
0: What I like about the book also is you mention as one section finishes and you're starting the second or or the update and then the the current version of, of the book you reflect on what you wrote and what you could have done better at, but then also what, why what you wrote is what should have been there. How much of an effect maybe during the second section of the book, the update in 85, or then the third update or the second update was affected by your relationship with Brian at, at that point?
1: Well, the 85 update um, certainly reflects my growing relationship with him and kind of the despair that I felt as I was watching his life uh, um, go down the drain. Sure. Essentially, he was he was in terrible shape, terrible terrible shape. And um, so that's reflected in, in in the update that came out in eighty five. One um, is that the one I ended ended with you know is my. My grandmother used to say, where there's life, there's hope. Um, you know, th- there's, there's, there was uh, a period in the 1980s where, where, if your viewers don't know this, uh, Brian was under the control of a pseudo-doctor who, for nine years, um, had control of every aspect of Brian's life, every moment of Brian's life. And when it ended, uh, Brian, when Brian referred back to it, he said it was like I was in prison for nine years. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is during that time, if we, if we think back to the 60s and how much of Brian's beautiful Beach Boys music came out of the emotions of young love, longing for a girl, wanting a girl, dreaming of a girl, Relationships. I mean, Pet Sounds is essentially an emotional autobiography yeah. Of, of, yeah. of 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 Brian's love. Um, in 1986, he met Melinda, his, his his wife now 30 years. So he was now writing again, with kind of the, you know the teenage crush. Sure. Yeah. And, and his 1988 album has some of his best songs of of the solo career. So uh, as horrible as that period was, Brian Brian is a genius at many things. Survival is one of them, and his ability to thrive under the most difficult circumstances is 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 astounding. So even though he was in prison, he found a way to make music that could reach us.
0: Well, besides Love and Mercy on his '88 uh, album, there's so there's many other gems on there, deep cuts on there that. Most regular people who know the Beach Boys music and Brian Wilson music don't know about. And it's it's a beautiful thing, as you mentioned, I sort of have to agree that even if he was in pain and tortured, that he was still able to create music regardless of that. As a writer, though, writing about that and not specifically specific incidents, but writing about that period in his life, how did you write about that and in, in an in, in ability to do it fully where you don't have to step back all the time and say, this is too much for me to write about at the moment? It, it, it's
1: a great question uh you know when i wrote
0: the first book the beach boys were breaking up
1: <laughs> you know, There it, it always seems to be a crisis of one kind or another um in, in, in writing this book um i just wrote it and then i looked at, at it and i said are these stories too personal to include yeah. because there's a there's a line between me writing about my adventures with Brian Wilson. And then there's, then there's, I don't want to cross the line of, wait a second, I'm his friend. The only reason I experienced those moments is because I'm his friend. So it's, it's not for me to write about those things. And that, that was really where I, I wouldn't say I struggled or I, where I gave a lot of thought to what should be included and what shouldn't be included. There are, there are a couple of stories in particular that I read that are in the book that I really like. Okay, should I? Yeah. should that be there? You know, one in particular um, is has to do with an event that happened during the making of Beautiful Dreamer, and it's in the movie. Uh, and Melinda tells the story about um, Brian going to the emergency room during the rehearsals, and that um, afterwards, you know, she said, You want to go out to dinner. And, <laughs> yeah. And then we left. Um, so I felt like that story, and then she also in the movie talks about how he was going downhill just before going to London, how nervous he was. So I felt I could write about that a little bit. And so what I added to that was when the four of us came out of the hospital and I was walking ahead of, of, of Melinda and, and my late my wife, and Brian and I were a good 20 feet ahead, so they couldn't hear what we were saying. And I said to Brian, if, if finishing smile is going to upset you this much, it's not worth doing. Yeah. Which was not an easy thing to say. And this was now, we're now 2004. I've been waiting 33 years <laughs> to hear smile. Yeah. And, but, but as his friend, um, I felt that was kind of like a put up or shut up moment. Yeah. Because if I was going to be critical of other people for how they might have exploited Brian. And I needed to not be a person like that. And I had to be, I, at that moment, I had to be his friend. I said, Brian, we won't make the movie. We won't. You don't have to go to London. None of that.
2: Yeah.
1: And um, he said, no, I have to do it. Which is what he told Melinda that she, she said in the movie. His mm-hmm. determination he says it over and over again he said it, i think on the mike douglas talk show in 1976 my last name is wilson so i guess i have a lot of will yeah
0: the last 30 years that that you've known brian and maybe specifically the last 24 or so um dating back to the late 90s you've played a big role in his resurgence as a solo artist whether it be the all-star tribute concert or the, the the smile and at several other of the events that he did, the, uh, the Roxy Theater show. For, for you to be part of that and help bring that part of Brian back into the world, what does that mean to you in terms of self-gratification, but also in a sense of your ability as a friend to Brian? In terms
1: of self-gratifying, it was spectacular. I mean, it, it was kind of like one dream come true after another. Sure. I didn't have anything to do with Making the Roxy happen, I just I was there and I got to write the liner notes. Um, But um, you know, a lot of the things as a friend were uh, like the very the first tours when Brian called and said, "You you got to come out here. I can't do this without you." I I didn't do anything. I was there. Yeah, you know, my my late wife and I. We were there. That's what he wanted. He, He. you know, when you are successful, it, has, it doesn't matter what field you're successful in, there are people who are trying to figure out how can I get a piece of that?
2: Sure. How
1: can I how can I glom onto that? And in Brian's case, it's kind of an epidemic in terms yeah. of people, you know, wanting a piece of Brian Wilson. And so if he has a friend, Ray, Jerry, myself, uh, Danny Hutton, People who didn't want anything from him, people were just happy to hang out. Yeah, that meant a lot to him. And and, and conversely, it meant a lot to me that, that we were just hanging out. Sure. So, so we wouldn't have been on those tours. Uh, I wouldn't have you know, gone to Japan with him if not for him wanting me to be there. Um, I, again, I had no official role. Sure. Uh, I was I, I never worked for him as a manager. Uh, a PR agent or anything like that. I, I never was in his employ. That that was very important to Brian because sure. people people sooner or later go to work for him.
2: Yeah,
1: and that's you know whether it's as a lyricist or whatever, and that's usually when the relationship starts to go sour because now it's a boss employee relationship. Sure. We're just friends. Yeah, you want to go to the, you want to go to the wine and swim. You want to go to the movies. You want to go out to dinner. I mean, it, it's. It sounds it's surrealistic. Sure, you know we're, we're walking from my apartment down the Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica to the movie theater and back. And on the way back, he's telling me, "You know, I need you to be there when I do smile." <laughs> I say, what. <laughs> you know, it, so it's 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 really been um. um Extremely meaningful in in both of the ways you described. And, and, uh, you know, the the all-star tribute was a giant payback. It's what what can we do to honor this guy?
2: You
1: know, and I think you can tell by the people who were there, Paul Simon, Billy Joel, Elton John, Sir George Martin, David Crosby, Carly Simon, Jimmy Webb, and on and on and on. That's the regard that Brian Wilson sure. is held in, that, that these people went out of their way to be there, as he yeah. said. He, 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 was, he was stunned. Yeah, He really was.
0: Well, what I like about the All-Star Tribute Show, t- two of my favorite performances besides the end, or three, I should say, my favorite three, were I think Billy Joel's performance of Don't Worry Baby, um, Paul Simon's Surfer Girl uh, performance, I believe that was at that concert, and then... Yes the threesome version of uh, Surf's Up with Jimmy Webb on piano, uh, David Crosby, and um, why am I forgetting his name? Vince um, Gill. Vince Gill, yes. And the story Vince Gill shares about learning that he was being tasked with singing some of the songs, some of Brian's toughest songs, is is a funny one nonetheless. Um, what, I re- what I also chuckle about, and I didn't learn this until maybe watching other interviews you did, is Brian's television appearance uh, in, in the late 80s on uh, the new version of Leave it to Beaver as Mr. Hawthorne. Where does that rank for you in terms of the other things you had a role in in, in his later career? I would say that's
1: that's fairly close to the bottom of the list in terms of the uh, importance uh, or, or meaning. That that was just, you know, I was I was a staff writer on the new Leave it to Beaver, the executive producer, uh, Brian Levant, who, who the writer and producer of the show as well said any chance we we could get brian to come in and be the teacher and um i asked and it, it happened yeah but it it was it was a silly you know if you go back to the beach boys career there there they are in the monkey's uncle yeah um with the with national it will it it, it 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 ranks just slightly above living doll i would say <laughs>
0: It's it's an interesting clip, and I'll, I'll leave that that based on Brian where he was at, at that point in in the in the eighties. Really touched my heart in in your in your book. Besides the other stuff I mentioned, is your homage and tribute to Dennis Wilson at the end of the eighty five update and and sort of his album and what that was like and sort of his path through life. He he had probably one of the greatest albums in my opinion that he ever put out, being Pacific Ocean Blue and Right, it, it's better than I think most of the Beach Boys albums, in, in my opinion, as as well. Given the success that that album had, not just briefly then, but also in thirty years later when it was got all the awards in two thousand eight. Do you think? Would you have liked to have seen that direction taken by the Beach Boys back then?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, if they if they had recorded the songs on Pacific Ocean Blue, they would have had a career
2: sure. worth
1: talking about. I mean the. the, the there were, there were two great songwriters in the Beach Boys, Brian and Dennis. Yeah. And Carl wrote some great songs, but he, he was not prolific. Sure. Um, Dennis was pretty prolific. Yeah. You you hear it on the Field Flows box set. You hear it on the expanded edition of, of Pacific Ocean Blue. Um, Dennis was undisciplined. Yes. And, and to have a career, that has to be your number one priority, your number two priority, your number three priority. So if after Pacific Ocean Blue had come out, he had gone out and done a tour and then come back and done another album and gone out and done another tour and come back and done another album, that's how you build a career. Sure, I mean, you look at somebody like, like Billy Joel. Billy Joel was in a group called The Hassles. Then he was in a group called Attila, the Then he did, uh, I think, three solo albums mm-hmm. without a hit. Well, that's really about a big hit, for "Piano Man," and and so he was working at it for a long time, sure. and and Dennis, just God love him, yeah. he he was a
2: wild man. Sure,
0: how much? The, and you kind of answered it then, though. But how much of an effect, if let's say that was a success, and he stayed on the straight path of of life and got his stuff together. How much of an effect would that have had in terms of the Beach Boys history today in terms of a positive release back then?
1: It's a really interesting speculation. You know, it's, it's hard to know. Brian was really unhappy with the fact that Dennis, Carl, and Mike could do solo albums, but if he was working, it had to be Beach Boys. Sure. Um, there's a, a short story in the, in the update about the first time Carl played in his first solo album not a very not a pretty story at all um, so you know, when Brian wanted to name an album Brian loves you they said no we're going to call it the Beach Boys love you uh, even though it was primarily Brian's work same with yeah. adult child which you know, why couldn't that have come out yeah so so as they as as what happened in 67 with, with beach boys you know for whatever whatever combination of circumstances they didn't follow him down the smile path sure they they didn't let him go down the redwood slash three dog night path
2: sure
1: so he was stymied now he couldn't help himself he'd come out with great songs yeah it just kept it was it was like just nature for him
2: sure and every
1: every album would have you know at least a couple um and then it stopped If in 77, when when the Beach Boys were imploding, if Dennis had been successful and I could say, okay, I don't need to come back to to the Beach Boys, and Carl had seen that path and taken a similar path, maybe the Wilson brothers could have recorded together. And that would have given us what we needed because it was the DNA of that harmony that is at the core of of what we love about the Beach Boys music. And Brian has shown he can take any voices, including 12 of his own, and make make it sound like the Beach Boys. Um, But, you know, the the Beatles uh, broke up in in 1970. If the the Beach Boys had broken up, uh, back then, Dennis might have gone off and had a career working with Daryl Dragon. Who the heck knows? Um, But... You know, the, the the family business kept them together. I, I see. You know, you've got two family businesses on the wall behind you, yeah. and and good things don't necessarily come to to family businesses that outlive their use their youthfulness and their usefulness.
0: Well, I just I I also I, I marvel at most things about the Beach Boys and everything about the Beach Boys. But to think, and it's always been it's been said and it was said in the Dennis Wilson. BBC documentary about him how no one could no one was able to tell that Dennis Wilson would turn to such a prolific songwriter and lyricist on almost the same level as Brian and you see what happened to Brian in the last 30 years of his own solo tour you say what could have been with Dennis but what, what, what can you say you can't go back in time unfortunately we haven't mastered that scientific fact and ability yet. Um, For sure. that you've also as I mentioned in your intro you worked with countless other acts to um, Bee Gees and you get stuff on Peter Sellers, Jonathan Winters, and the Brothers Marks, and some of the other ones. Your process for those, what varies from that those projects, other outside Beach Boys products, to then Brian Wilson projects?
1: Well, the the, the Brian Wilson projects, with the exception of of the All Star Tribute and Beautiful Dreamer, have have just kind of been my hobby, if sure. you will. Um, you know, the liner notes for the two firsts and the the the. the the box sets, uh, the Good Vibrations and Head Sound Sessions box sets. Those are were, those were just great projects to work on. Sure. Um, my career as a writer, director, producer has taken me down a lot of different roads. The, 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 the first series of documentaries I did for um, the Disney Channel and PBS um, I almost refer to those as kind of father and son programs sure. in the sense when I was a kid, um, local television would show on Sunday afternoons, they'd show Marx Brothers movies. And my father would say, well, oh, we got to watch these guys were are the greatest. Yeah. So we'd watch them with them. And so now I'm making a documentary about the Marx Brothers, and I'm trying to essentially create new fans.
2: Sure.
1: The way my father was when he was having us watch the movies with us. Um, the, the the lone exception in that era was was the first Beatles project I did. You can't do that. The making of a Hard Day's Night, um, which uh, was was you know, as a as a beetle fanatic, uh, a Beatle maniac. Um, uh, you know the, the Beatles are my number one group. Sure. All time. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> um, uh, th- from from start to finish, they there was there's so much joy in the work they did. Sure. forget what's going on behind the scenes because I didn't know what was going on behind the scenes with the Beach Boys either. It's just there there there, there doesn't seem to be uh, a downward turn in their career. It's just like it goes like this, and then it ends. Sure. Uh, so making a documentary on, on you can't do that. Uh, on, on Hard Day's Night it was just just wonderful fun.
2: Sure.
1: And that's what introduced me into music documentary. Right. And I did a lot of retrospective shows for PBS and other networks on specific um, legends uh, from generations prior to mine, like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Rosemary Clooney, etc. cetera. Um, but in each one of those programs, there was a certain license where okay, I was trying to figure out how do I make this show interesting? Sure. How, do I, how does the show play? Because, you know, it's you don't just take 14 songs and string them together. What's the story that's going to be told? And I think, if anything, um, from the time I was little and making up lies as to why I hadn't done my homework, um, I've been a storyteller. And that's that's the skill, if you will, that I was able to apply to Brian on, on a grand scheme. But I, you know, I remember when when we went to meet with Jonathan Winters to discuss that program. That was, uh, Jonathan Winters on the loose, and and if if you think Robin Williams is great, yeah, Jonathan Winters was Robin Williams' uh, idol. Yeah. Is, his, his mentor his his uh you know his, that's who he looked up to um, and when we went to see him he said to my uh, my my former partner he said, what kind of show do you have do you guys have in mind and i said to him i said because what i'd love to do he goes he got really excited he says, what i'd love to do is go into town and go into different stores as different characters and and have the camera follow me. (laughs) And I, and I said, that's great. That's perfect. That's what we're going to do. But before we got to that, when, when he said, what kind of a show do you guys have in mind? My answer was what kind of a show would you like to do?
2: Wow. And
1: I, And because no one's, he said, I've never been asked that question before. Hmm. And I thought that was terribly sad that that an artist at his level had always been constricted by network ideas of what Jonathan Winters should be. And so if you watch reruns of North and Mindy, you'll see Jonathan Winters and Robin Williams just explosively ad-libbing, which was what Jonathan Winters was greatest at. So to have a chance to have our camera follow him around, Ed Living was 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 a thrill. Um, Each one of those shows was a learning experience and getting more and more more sense of how do you make a show play for an hour or an hour and a half that that you can hold the audience. And that was you know I I worked on a lot of
2: uh,
1: a lot of award shows, the Billboard Awards for nine years. I worked on a number of tribute shows. Before I I, I I wrote and produced the Brian Wilson tribute, I'd worked on an Elvis tribute and El, a, a Christopher Reeve tribute. Um, I later worked on an Ella Fitzgerald tribute, and it's you know there are these great artists who um, there's a story. What is the story that I yeah. thought the audience should 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 learn, and um, that that is probably the guiding force of everything i've done in my book in in my book in my career and in in the book what's the story i could tell the audience in this update sure that they would want to hear that that was kind of the conceit i bring to to every project and in this particular in this update i i really didn't want to dwell on the negativity that has surrounded um, the Beach Boys, Brian, the Depths, and everything—I wasn't going to ignore it, but I really wanted to talk about all these celebratory moments. Yeah, because there's there's a lot to sure. talk about
0: there. The, the work uh, mentioning the outside Beach Boy Brian Wilson work you've done, and some of those I, I mentioned John Lennon as well, and you know one on James Brown and Peter Sellers. Three, I believe, at least the James Brown when he had died. When you finished it, was was that the situation that? He was um, gone after that.
1: Actually, James Brown died when we were in
0: pre-production. Oh, okay. So, and and those then then how do you how much of a challenge maybe not I don't want to say excitable challenge but a, a challenge in the sense of okay I have to tell a story now where the person who is about is not present to share their story and it's just family members.
1: It's absolutely a challenge, and the key is to, is to get people who can speak sure. um, from an intimate point of view. Sure. With, with, with the John Lennon film, the story of the U.S. versus John Lennon was how the U.S. government was, was persecuting John Lennon, and Yoko Ono was there by his side for the entire story. Um, so the challenge was getting Yoko Ono mm-hmm. to want to work with me, uh, my partner, on this movie. And that was, perhaps, I, I'm a pretty confident person. Uh-huh. Um, uh, as I write in the book, when, when I saw Dennis Wilson on the streets of Santa Monica, I didn't hesitate to, to go up to him and talk to him. Yeah. Um, when I first met Mike Love, I didn't hesitate to start asking him questions. Um, I, for whatever reason, um, I, I believe that, that I knew what I was
2: talking about. Sure. Uh, Even I if,
1: and and so so with going to see Yoko Ono, however, given her reputation,
2: sure,
1: uh, was a pretty scary moment sure. to stand uh, catty cornered from the Dakota apartment building at Central Park West, and realize I had to cross the spot where John Lennon had been murdered, and go upstairs and convince her to make the movie. That was that was as intimidating a moment as I, I, I think I have
0: had. It's uh, well, and not to mention someone who is a well known and, and a big part of some of the greatest music of all time and part of the greatest moments of all time in music and in rock and roll, when you're not t- uh, making documentaries or writing books, you're, you're teaching at UCLA, you're teaching a, a course about um, the Beatles, but then, a few other courses as well. What does what do those courses that you're teaching provide you that filmmaking and uh, book writing do not provide to you?
1: That's a really smart question. Um, I want to come back on this show again someday. Okay. <laughs> um, so the first time I went into the classroom, uh, keeping in mind that I was a really bad student when I was younger, I was a class clown. Sure and there's nothing teachers hate more than, than, than the Joker. Um, first time I went into a classroom and, and the course I taught, I named Docs That Rock, Docs That, uh, it's gonna be about music documentary. So I, I, I had the confidence that I was talking about a subject that I, I knew pretty well, um, but I found, um, I really, it was like I found a home in the classroom. Uh, both talking about the work, but also talking to guys, you know, guys and young men and women your age or younger who were looking to me, not they were looking to me for help. Like, what are you going to teach us? And um, after I taught that course for a couple of years, I taught a second, I began a second course called Songwriters on Songwriting. With the longest subtitle in history killer hooks essential songs and songwriters of the rocky era dot 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 and those they've influenced <laughs> and I, I i began bringing guests to all my classes so that i could talk to the students not so much about how they did what they did and i'm sorry i i i, point, I, 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 I brought, I, I brought the guests to class to interview them and, and the students would have a chance to talk to them as well. Not so much about how they did what they did, but to talk to them about their origin story. Because I found people's origin stories to be the most interesting from the sense that once people are successful, it's pretty much, okay, they have a career, goes up and down and up and down. Um, so, so what I could, teach students was this is how this person became an academy award winning director this is how this person became a grammy winning songwriter this is how this person got involved with the beatles i teach a course called the real beatles r-e-e-l and i interview people who actually not only worked with the beatles but knew them before they were the beatles so so it's a it's it allows me to to Go into the past to things that I'm interested in. And I think by sharing that passion with my students, they, they come for the ride with me.
2: Sure.
1: And, and, and they enjoy, even though most of the subject matter happened not only before they were born, but before their parents were yeah, yeah. born. Um, I, I think I help bring it to life and make it relevant to, to today's time.
0: Well, and I'm sure it also gives you great pride in the fact that they may not be the next Bernie Toppins or, or Tony Ashers or Brian Wilsons or Werner Herzogs, but you can instill in them the ability to know how to be successful and what it them to take and what it would take for them to be successful as well. Before we, we sort of say... And- hey, did, you, did, you, did you read an article
1: I wrote about this or something? Because that's exactly... My goal is to teach them how to be successful. Oh, no, I just,
0: I think you might have mentioned an interview where you're saying they're not going to be maybe big time lyricists, but to teach them other stuff is the goal of, of, of the uh, class. It, it, it is
1: absolutely the goal is, is, is because these are, these are young, young men who got into UCLA, so they're already in the top, yeah. you know, one-tenth of percent. They're succeeding at UCLA.
2: Yeah.
1: I'm helping to give them a sense of how to succeed in the real world. Sure. And I'm sharing with them a lot of my own stories, successes and, and, and failures too.
0: Now, before we, we end here today, and again, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this. I have two little games I want to play with you at, at the end of this, if, if you're willing Uh-oh. to do it. So this first one is sort of like a quick fire Brian Wilson thing Well, I'll say, oh, your favorite, this thing about Brian, and then you'll, you'll give your answer. The next one is a thing called the one word challenge, which I'll uh, explain better when we get there. So for this one, I'll ask you a few questions just about uh, Brian from a general standpoint, and then you'll give your answer to it. Uh, So number one, your favorite collaborator of Brian's?
1: Tony Escher, Van Dyke Park's Tide.
0: Favorite deep cut of Brian's and or the Beach Boys?
1: Um,
0: Breakaway. Okay. Uh, Besides Smile, your favorite Brian Wilson solo album?
1: Brian Wilson presents Smiles Gershwin live at the Roxy. <laughs>
0: uh, and besides his music and his 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 known sense of humor, your favorite quality he possesses?
1: He's really sweet. He's he's he is he has he's just such a
0: kind person. Sure. Um,
1: he, he doesn't have a mean bone in his body.
0: That I, that it seems as though he he is that in. Uh, one moment that sticks out to me is I forget I think it was the most recent concert I saw of him with my father but then the all, all other ones as well when he would sing God Only Knows and he's he's gotten standing ovations but to see him at this stage of his career to get a standing ovation to have the his bandmates and Al Jardine and Blondie all bow, bow down to him in, in a happy type of way and have the crowd just stand there, him just having it soak in on him and then him saying thank you is it's such a big deal and he seems as though he's always been that type of humble um the thing i the next thing i want to end as i cut my paper by the way um, i I think
1: i think part of that humbleness comes from him believing that he's a channel for god sure that the music comes through him so hey i i didn't really do it i mean he knows he did it but you can't take all the credit won't take all
0: the credit (laughs) well exactly as as the wilson brothers usually don't do um the last game i want to end with is called the one word challenge so what and this is is my guest this week uh david leaf is i'll throw a few names places people or things that have some connection to my guest and he'll have to do his best to say either a word or two or sentence the best comes to mind when he hears it so david are you ready
1: this is tough but i i am ready go ahead
0: Uh, westchester new york (laughs)
1: sales pizzeria <laughs> uh,
0: santa monica california the ocean <laughs> Darren sahanaja
1: greatness
0: uh, ucla uh, you want only one word one or two or sentence whatever comes to mind it's just
1: spectacularly special place
0: uh brian wilson
1: my hero my friend I wish him I, I wish him only um, peace and happiness. And because he has given us so much joy with his mommy.
0: exactly. only we we can only hope for that, especially after the last sixty years of him uh, providing the the best that he could. And last but certainly never least in this cosmic universe, we live in David Leaf.
1: Workaholic. <laughs>
0: Well, trying, I, I, trying,
1: trying to break that, uh, breaking the habit with, with the help of my fiance.
0: Yes, I, I, and I hope now during these times after the book has come out, you give yourself a, a time to relax and breathe a little bit. Well, Mr. Leaf, I, I can't begin to express my gratitude for you to be humble enough and willing and open to share your stories about your book and other things revolving around Brian. This has been a, a true treat. Thank you, Nolan. And I, I have to say before, before you sign off, I,
1: I am extraordinarily impressed with, uh, with your preparation and, and the questions. This is, this is really a, 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 a great conversation. Oh. Had. So I, I, I appreciate
0: it. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I know we, we had talked about making sure I put out the, the links for the book, which I certainly can. And if you want to promote that, you, the floor is yours, as, as they say. Well, I, you
1: know, if, if you're watching, if, you, if you've come this far in the, in the interview, um, God Only Knows, the story of Brian Wilson, The Beach Boys and the California Myth is out uh, September 22nd. Uh, Nolan is going to post a, a, an Amazon link where, where you where you can buy it. Um, I'm also going to, uh, I'm working on putting together kind of a VIP experience of the book, which I'll be announcing on my Facebook page sometime um, before the book actually comes out, which will, will involve a a uh, uh, personally autographed, numbered, and limited edition of the book. There have been a lot, of, a lot of questions as how to, how to get a signed copy. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I just want people to uh, buy the book from Amazon or, or, or your local bookstore even better yeah. and, and read it. And I, I hope uh, people feel they get their money's worth because uh, I like to think of it as two books in one. It has the original book and then the, the, the update which uh, is is more than half the length of the original sure. part. so so there's there's a, there's a lot to read a lot to absorb i know that in writing the update the first thing i did was read the original edition and uh, the 1985 update and it's intense sure it's 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 it's, it's not breezy. Sure. So I, I I tried to make the update a little more a, a little easier to read um, b- because um, it, it, the last thirty something years with Brian have been easier. Sure, uh, he hasn't he hasn't had quite the, the pain and suffering.
2: Um,
1: but. Uh, you know, I, it's it's uh, it's a privilege to be on the show. It's a privilege to write about Brian. I think I've written more words about him than anybody else <laughs> alive at this point. Um, I I feel like, uh, in many ways, that you know, I started on this mission uh, fifty years ago, and, and this this book, uh, the, the original edition, was the, the a big step in the mission. But now it feels like. With the book finally getting out into the world the, you know, the mission of me as a writer about Brian uh, it, it feels complete at this point
0: well'm I'm, I'm eagerly waiting for a heart for a hard copy when it comes out in September the middle of September I have i have the Amazon version so I'll be looking forward to, to to purchasing when it is available if you like what you watch because who the heck went in down the road when my guest this week wins another award for either his written work or his documentary film work. he will say, "Holy crap! I should have subscribed, followed, shared, all that fun jazz." Then follow on Instagram, Nolan Cart Night Show on Twitter, Nolan Cart Night. And in the words of the dean of talk show, Johnny Carson, I bid you all heartfelt goodnight. Till next time, take care and thank you.